All right. So we're going to read uh, Hosea, all of chapter one uh, together, and then we will get into uh, the, the message. So I'm reading from the ESV. Some of you guys, if you have the NIV, there might be some words that are switched around. Uh, we will talk about that during the sermon today. So Hosea chapter one, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will break the bow of Israel, or and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, we are not in Romans anymore. We finished off Romans last week. Uh, which concluded about just over a year, actually about a year and a half uh, time spent in Romans. And so I'm really excited to get into the study of Hosea. I've been anticipating this ever since we landed on this book. Hosea is a whole new genre. It's a whole different uh, beast to tackle than Romans. And so before we dive into the exegesis of this text, I want to give you uh, some more orientation. So we've moved from now the New Testament, we're back into the Old Testament. Hosea marks the first of what we call the Twelve, or the Minor Prophets. These are writings that are prophetic in nature, so they not only foretell uh, current situations, but they also foretell future condemnation for the people of Israel. Uh, the exact time in which this is set is roughly the 8th century BC. Uh, we can't pin exactly where Hosea was written, but the Twelve was written during that portion in Israel's history. Of the twelve, Hosea is the most theologically complete, which is why it finds itself first in the book. It's not first because of its chronological order. In fact, Amos comes before Hosea in chronology. But Hosea is the most theologically complete in its articulation of God and his relationship to his people. The imagery that is used in Hosea, you'll later read, or if you read your Bible sequentially through, you'll actually read before Hosea. They pop up in books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel this picture of the marriage relationship and the violation 
of that marriage relationship. Chronologically as well, uh, Hosea is set roughly at the same time as Jonah, and he also has Obadiah and Amos kind of roughly in that same span of time. So God was raising up many prophets. We call them the minor prophets, not because their works are any less, but because they are shorter in nature than the larger works that we get from uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. But they all were raised up roughly around the same time. Hosea is specifically commissioned out to northern Israel and what is now called Israel specifically by Hosea. You see the kingdom split, Israel and Judah. We'll break down this timeline later, but Hosea is specifically commissioned to the north side of that kingdom to spell out his message that God has for that king. Before we get into the whole study of the book, though, I have some disclaimers at the front end of what we will and will not touch on during this time. There are a lot of historians who have had difficulty with Hosea, pinning down the exact time of his ministry, pinning down the exact span of his prophecy and his prophetic ministry of the Lord to the kings. We're not going to be able to resolve that over the course of the study, nor is it our intent to. That is more of an academic in-house debate that happens among Christians. It is sometimes an out-of-house debate when you get critics who will throw uh, claims of inerrancy against the Hosea and make claims on the basis of dating, uh, but there's no significant reason to really address any of that in our time here. Uh, so that's a disclaimer. We won't be touching on that. I just want you to know it is out there. Uh, another thing, Hosea has not just given historians difficulty, it has also given many theologians difficulty with interpretation. The exact interpretation or the exact through-line big-picture motif interpretation is extremely clear in this book. It's very difficult to confuse. There are some smaller, more minute details that theologians will debate over. For example, one such question is, is Gomer real or not? Is she a real historical person or is it a large-picture parable that Hosea is just preaching a parable of his a theoretical relationship to this woman? So there's, that's an in-house debate. Theologians land on both sides of that. They have much difficulty and they labor hard over it. We're not going to address all the pros and cons to either side of those things. I will let you know that uh, it's my opinion and the opinion of those who uh, studied this passage in preparation for this, that Gomer is in fact a real woman and that has specific implications for the teaching that we will do tonight. But it's not my intent to give you all the ins and outs of that as well. And then the last disclaimer is that, as you've probably already noticed, Hosea is graphic it is raw, and it is uncut. We will not shy away from the message that's in here. It is my intent to be every bit as detailed as the Bible is on this subject, but it is not my intent to be any uh, more detailed than the Bible is as well. The Bible is explicitly clear in what it's teaching here, and I don't want to miss any of the weight of that, but I also don't want to go too far and say things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say in this text as well. So as we look into this, I think that Hosea, at least this first chapter, breaks down into roughly three major things that you can look at. The first piece is you can see Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Those in chapters 1 all the way through the end of chapter 3. Then uh, in verses 4 through 9, you get the picture of God's judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness. And then at the end of verse 9, you get verses 10 and 11, which actually the Hebrew variation of Hosea breaks the chapter 2 heading right at the beginning of verse 10 because it's so sharply different from the, from the previous verses. And that is really God's restoration or his promise of restoration for the people. So that's roughly how we're going to break it down. We're going to start with Israel's unfaithfulness in chapter 1. And at the outset of the book, we get to see that Hosea was not only a prophet, but his whole life was a parable of sorts in that he enacted 
what was theologically and spiritually true of the people of Israel in their relationship to God, that they were an unfaithful people. And so Hosea must then go and marry an unfaithful wife. And so in verse one, it reads, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The first words given in this section are extremely important. It says, the word of the Lord. This is the same pattern we see in a lot of prophetic messages, the word of the Lord to such and such person, and that establishes the author of that book. In this case, the word of the Lord is right at the front because when a prophet would have a word from the Lord, it wouldn't be that they themselves are of any value or stature to say the message that they were delivering. They are a messenger, a vessel. And so when they say the word of the Lord, it is not their own opinion, it is not their own thoughts, it is not their own musings or ideas, it is not that they are philosophers and they're thinking highly of things. They are directly relaying a message that God, who is sovereign over all creation, has chosen to use them to deliver. And so this is why the word of the Lord and comes to Hosea, and this is why he feels the need to share this message out. It's not because the message is particularly nice or particularly uh, pleasing to the ears of its listeners. It is because the message is needed because God said it was needed. This is the same reason why when we study scripture, we stick with the text. We go exegetically, book by book, verse by verse, line by line, and we comb over it. And it's the job of any modern-day pastor or any modern-day preacher to comb through this book and to mine out the gold that is within it and to deliver it to the people. You see, a miner doesn't create gold. They just go dig it out and get it to people. And in the same way, I don't create any truth. Max doesn't create any truth. When you read the Bible, you don't create any musings in your own heart that you put into the text. You get the truth that's in the word and you pull it out. And that is what is uncovered for us to benefit from and to meditate on. So the word of the Lord. This is the call of God on Hosea's life. We get to actually see God call Hosea into the ministry. Based on the span of his reign and the span of Hosea's ministry, Hosea was probably a young man when this happened, roughly around the age between 13 and 16, somewhere in there, when God makes this initial call on his life. So we get to see that in this writing. The other thing is when God speaks, he leaves no room for uncertainty. When the word of the Lord comes, it is clear, it is specific, and as we will come to see, it is very on the nose, and it doesn't leave much room for interpretation. He's not leaving anything up to chance to be misheard or misunderstood. And so uh, when you hear people today say, the Lord said to me this, or the Lord said to me that, you need to be careful about what that means, because a lot of times you will hear people who speak vaguely about things, saying it is the word of the Lord, and it is extremely easy to confuse those messages. And upon the revelation of the scripture, whenever God speaks, it is clear what he is saying. It is explicitly clear. It is almost uncomfortably clear what he is saying. And as you will come to find out in Hosea, God's, God pulls no punches when he says things. He explicitly calls out sin. When Jesus comes and he says things to people, he tells them about their whole life when he's never met them before. That is prophetic word from the Lord which is different, I think, than a lot of what we unfortunately see today, people claiming to say things and messages on behalf of God. The last note here is the inerrancy and the authority of Hosea's message. It comes on the basis of the word of the Lord. Again, Hosea 
is he has no power in and of himself. He is a mouthpiece, a vessel, and he's just going to carry this message to the people. Uh, one side note, which gets missed in English, and by the way, when I say uh, we're going to be looking at the Hebrew from time to time in this text, it doesn't mean that your English translation is particularly wrong. Your English translation is a faithful translation of the Word of God. It gets the through-line message. But in English, sometimes with names, we miss some of the poetic elements and some of the interesting details that I think are very good for study. Hosea's name, Oshea, is the same as Joshua's name. It's the same verb root. And if you recall Joshua, the leader of Israel who led Israel into the promised land, his name means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. His name is the same name in your New Testament, which is attributed to Jesus. In fact, Jesus is a shortening of the name Joshua. So Hosea, Joshua, and Jesus technically all have the same Hebrew root word for their name. And in fact, Joshua gets that name from Moses when Joshua gets his name changed by Moses. He gets the Yahweh saves added onto it. And Hosea has the exact same name as that. So this is just an interesting fact. Again, that's not that your English translation is wrong. That is just that it's an interesting fact to know about the Hebrew. In context, you, we get a lot of that in verse 1. We get Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. They're all the kings of Judah. So Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. It was small. It consisted of two tribes of the 12. The northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. And they have, in, in Israel, we have one king who, who's listed here, Jeroboam. Likely, Jeroboam wasn't the only king who reigned during the time of Hosea's ministry. But Jeroboam is the last significant king of Israel because shortly after Jeroboam's reign ends, there's six kings in 30 years and then Israel gets overtaken by Assyria. And so the context that this is set in is pretty important for the message that we're about to hear. So I'm going to start at the beginning of Israel's, of Israel's advent and then we're going to follow them through line through to where we are at today in broad brushstrokes. So Israel, first and foremost, was a nation that was oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 years before God sends Moses, his servant, from the wilderness back into Egypt to deliver his people. And through a series of events, Moses engages with the Pharaoh and shows God to be mighty and the one true God and then leads his people in deliverance from Egypt through many, many obstacles into the wilderness. And the people of Israel sit in the wilderness for a while. But while they're in the wilderness... They get the Ten Commandments and God declaring his covenant faithfulness to the people. They get the law of God. They get all of his statues. They get to build a tabernacle. They get to build all these beautiful images of God. And they get to see him work in mighty ways. And then upon being in the wilderness, the one unfaithful generation dies and a new generation is raised up who Joshua is going to lead. And Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land, the land that God had declared to them that they were going to get into and the land that he promised to Abraham back in early parts of Genesis. And eventually they do get into the promised land, and not only do they enter, but they also conquer the majority of the promised land. And they do so pretty simply. And it's with, with decisive victories and decisive, steadfast, stepwise advancements that they eventually, in the lifetime of Joshua, conquer nearly the entire span of the promised land. Not perfectly, but through the blessing of God, they get much done. And then... We get into the time of the judges where Israel is unfaithful to God. So although they have the law of God, they start to wander. And from time to time, God will raise up a judge and Israel will follow God for that period of time and then they will wander away again when the judge dies off. And you see this pattern repeat several times through the book of Judges until finally we get to 
someone who's going to stop that cycle. And the first way in which that cycle stops is we get King Saul. And King Saul is the first king of Israel who's going to be a leader, who's going to be the representative head of the household of all of Israel, all the 12 tribes. But Saul's reign is very short-lived in terms of his favor that he has with God. And God actually raises up David. And when God establishes David on the throne, he makes a specific covenant with David. We call it the Davidic covenant. And through it, David, being from the house of Judah, God, is, God says to him, I'm going to have my son, a Messiah, come through your line, who's going to be the full and final reign and ruler over all of my people. And so this is a specific covenant to David. And after David passes away, Solomon, his son, takes over. Solomon reigns and has the, the most expansive and glorious period in Israel's history. They call it essentially the golden age of Israel. And then when Solomon passes away, his sons begin fighting over the throne. And then you see the throne split into the 10 tribes in the north, which we refer to as Israel, and the two tribes in the south, which we refer to as Judah. And during this period of time in the book of First and Second Kings in your Bible and also in Chronicles, you can read about this, there's a series of kings and sometimes the king is good, really only a handful of times. And for the majority of the time, the king is very wicked. And they do things like worship other gods or commit animal sacrifice or oppress the people or they're unfaithful to God or they make allegiances with people who are within the promised land that should have been exterminated but weren't. And so they go against God in almost every single way possible. Israel is generally speaking, when you read those texts, more guilty of this than Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah is more faithful to God overall. Not perfectly, but overall. And so at this moment in time in Israel's history, they're at a particularly bad place. You see, at this moment, we've had King Ahab, who reigned for quite a while. And when King Ahab reigned, the people of Israel were ex almost exclusively worshiping Baal at the time. In fact, uh, we get some really interesting stories during that time, but what happens is King Ahab is finally overthrown by this king uh, whose name is Jehu. And then when Jehu overthrows Ahab, he commits massive bloodshed. And Jehu is commissioned by God to go do this thing. And Jehu's lineage follows and falls into Jeroboam, the king we have now. So Jeroboam is in the lineage of Jehu who took over after King Ahab. And none of the kings in that lineage have been particularly loyal to God. And so God says, enough's enough. I'm going to declare what is happening in Israel through the prophet Hosea and call them to repent and to turn from their ways. So that's the historical context that we find ourselves in right now. Israel is also guilty of what's called syncretism, which basically means they mix worship of the one true God with worship of other gods. So it's not like they were denying God. They were just also engaging in other cultic practices at the time, which we will look at when we go deeper into the book of Hosea. So that's the context that we find ourselves in. So turning to verse 2, let's read, uh, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. You see, the Lord speaks through Hosea. That's just going to underscore that Hosea is a prophet on behalf of God. Hosea is going to not only commit ministry through his preaching, but he's also going to commit ministry through his life. You see, his whole life is going to enact the drama of God and Israel and their relationship towards one another. They're beautiful at first, but then ultimately broken relationship that we see unfold. And you see, the relationship that happens here between Hosea and Gomer is one of great tragedy. In fact, I think that it's hard to come up with an image, even in our own day and 
even in our own current culture, that is more devastating to read about. That at first, through a beautiful love relationship, Hosea and Gomer are married, and they get joined in a covenant relationship together. But then, not immediately, but after some time, Gomer becomes unfaithful to Hosea. And not once, but repeatedly. And not repeatedly, but ongoingly. And not even ongoingly, but in an unrepentant way for an extended period of time. In fact, she even has offspring with other lovers. And yet, God is still there. And Hosea remains faithful. Which is the picture that we get painted here. So Hosea has to take for himself a wife of adultery. In the ESV, it translates as a wife of whoredom. I believe in the NIV, it translates as a prostitute or adulteress. So this is not to be read as someone who is a professional prostitute. Some translations, you might be tempted to read that way. She was not a professional paid prostitute. In the English, or sorry, in the Hebrew, there is a specific word that could get translated that way for what was called a cult prostitute which happens during Baal worship. So she was not that. There's a different word that would apply to such thing. This simply means an unfaithful wife, or not a currently unfaithful wife, because in Israel, if you were a wife and you were unfaithful to your husband, the penalty was capital punishment. So it's not possible for her to have been an unfaithful wife and still be alive today, especially if it was known. But what is possible is for God to be prophetically declaring that Gomer will one day become unfaithful to Hosea. And God predicts this to occur. And actually, it's not a prediction. He promises it's going to occur. And he says, go anyway to that woman and take her to be your wife. And this is an interesting picture. But when you pause and you think about what this picture represents, the relationship between God and Israel, is that God knew full well what we were when he took Israel under his wing and when he made his covenant with them. He knew what would become of it. In fact, we don't even make it much out of the book of uh, Exodus when we get into Deuteronomy and Moses' reign isn't even over when he's predicting that the people will wander and stray from God. And so she will be unfaithful in the future and so will Israel. Israel will become unfaithful to God in their future. And their future is now what we're reading about. And so to paint this picture well for the people, God is going to ask Hosea to live out this drama in a real world example. Hosea goes immediately and takes Gomer to be his wife. There's no delay. It says God tells Hosea to do it, and he immediately does it, which is in sharp contrast to other prophets, like, for example, Jonah, who when they get the prophetic word, they don't listen immediately. They have to go through persuasion. And Hosea takes on no small task. He has to live with someone who he knows is going to become unfaithful to him. But he loves her patiently. The picture here is a picture that also gets pointed out in the New Testament and is painted out in the creation story. This is a picture of marriage, which is often used in the Bible to denote the relationship between God and his people, or in the New Testament, Jesus and the church. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes that the mystery between a wife and a husband is the mystery of Christ and the church. What's interesting about that is if that is the purpose of the mystery of husband and wives and their relationships and their covenant unions together, is that in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, when God makes a wife for Adam, he makes Eve for the purpose of playing out the drama of what will happen when he one day has to rescue his people from sin. And God does this before sin exists in the world. God paints the picture of marriage before sin has entered the world. 
And when Paul writes under the inspiration of the New Testament, of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, he paints out the picture as saying that marriage was always talking about Christ and the church. It's interesting to think that God had already in mind the saving of his people before sin existed in the world. And he creates marriage to occur. And so it is now when Hosea and Gomer have to play out this same drama, this same picture. Now I want to be careful here. Uh, there's a thing called narrative in the text, uh, narrative uh, passages in the Bible. And there's also such a thing as didactic portions of scripture. Didactic or teaching portions of scripture is like Romans, which we just came out of. It's specific instruction from an apostle to a church. Narrative portions of scripture are like, for example, Abraham moves to a new land, or Lot is in a city and the city is rescued by angels and then the city is destroyed. Narrative portions of scripture are to be interpreted differently than didactic portions. It's not a one-to-one correlation. Unfortunately, you can commit some pretty serious textual errors if you try to interpret them the same. For example, You're not supposed to wrestle with God how Jacob wrestled with God before he became Israel. That's a narrative portion of scripture. If you apply it straight through line as we should model whatever Jacob did, you're going to end up with some interesting interpretations. For this one, it applies fine. Jacob, you wrestle with God. That sounds great, right? You should be bold like Daniel was bold when he faced King Nebuchadnezzar and he stood in the the lion's den. It's a great heartwarming message, a narrative portion of scripture. Pray like Gideon and seek after God and find his will for your life. It's a narrative portion of scripture, not a didactic portion. We're not supposed to emulate everything in narrative. Because unfortunately, if you do all of those things, what I just said, Hosea is also a narrative portion of scripture. And God specifically commands Hosea to take an unfaithful spouse. You have to be careful with how you interpret narrative because it can put you in some pretty weird places when you get to your application. The picture of marriage is one that's beautiful, and it's the reason that God chooses this specific picture. They have an intimate relationship with one another. The relationship and the intimacy of Hosea and a future adulterous wife is not one that compromises Hosea the prophet. It's one that paints a a beautiful picture of intimacy between God and Israel. And even though God is holy, he can wed himself to an unholy people. And just like Hosea is a prophet and upright man, he can wed himself to an adulterous woman. It's not a compromising relationship. It's a beautiful depiction of God and his people. God is our loving husband and we are his bride, as we find out in the New Testament. Adultery, on the contrary, is the opposite or the unfaithfulness, the breaking of that marriage covenant. Idolatry idolatry is lust. So adultery is cheating on God with something else. And it's painted as a picture as idolatry in this text. That Baal is going to be the partner that we cheat on God with. Baal is a representative head of other gods that we idolize over God or we worship over God. Israel is worshiping at this moment in time Baal instead of God. Baal was a local Canaanite deity and Baal is the deity of uh, fertility. So they were an agrarian society, which means they needed crops to yield food, to be able to put food on the table and to have wealth. And so Baal was the local Canaanite variation of the God that brought rain to the earth and allowed crops to grow. So they said, well, we could worship God and we should also probably hedge our bets a little bit and worship Baal as well. And so this is the adultery that they commit by trusting in someone else other than the Lord God. Yahweh as he reveals himself in scripture. The picture of God's faithful love to Israel 
to rescue them out of slavery and to establish them is tarnished by them wandering and taking other lovers unto themselves. And so God says to go take for yourself Gomer, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That is the forsaking of God that is the depiction of Hosea and Gomer's relationship. Our idolatry today as well falls in line with this exact same depiction. We pursue passions other than God himself, and in doing so, we commit idolatry towards the one true God. God's covenant to us today is as intimate as it was with Israel, and yet we take it for granted. You see, the uncomfortable reality is that we have all prostituted ourselves out to sin and abandoned our relationship to God. That's the uncomfortable truth. We can all say very easily that we are Gomer in this text. That's who we are. God's word carries with it several times uncomfortable truths, and that's just a normative thing in Scripture. You see, Hosea is not a feel-good text. It's not a heartwarming sermon. Hosea is a fire and brimstone preacher. And all prophets, in fact, in the Old Testament that you can find are pretty much, by and large, fire and brimstone preachers. In fact, Jesus himself in the New Testament was a fire and brimstone preacher, talking more about hell than most pastors today would even dare in a three-year span of time. And yet Jesus did quite frequently in his ministry. We should not move too quickly past the reality that we are deserving of the punishment that comes with our idolatry, with our adultery, with our lust. If we break our covenant relationship with the Lord, and we do so without shame, and we do so without repentance, even if we do so with repentance, we are deserving of the just penalty for our sins. In Israel, to break the marriage bond was to be a capital crime, one punishable by death. To commit adultery against a holy and just God is punishable by death. So now that we have the picture painted, we see Israel's unfaithfulness. Now we're going to turn and look at God's judgment and God's condemnation on the people. We see the idolatry they commit. We see the adultery. And the fruit of that adultery is children who bear the name of God's different judgments on the people. In James 1.15, he writes, Then sin, or then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully, bro- fully grown, brings forth death. James 1.15. You see, when Gomer cheats on Hosea, her desire, her lust, conceives. And it brings forth sin. And the sin is born out, in a very real sense in this text, in children. And these children carry with it the just punishment for the sin that was committed. And so the first child we read about in verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. You see, Jehu, which is the person who is going to be punished here, or the lineage of Jehu, the house of Jehu, is fully realized in Jeroboam, who's the ruler of Israel at this time. Jeroboam is the offspring of Jehu, a few generations removed. And the specific sin of Jehu, or the house of Jehu, is unbridled and uh, uncompromising warfare and oppression of the people around them. God actually institutes Jehu to do something that God needs done which God is going to remove Ahab from the throne because Ahab has killed all of God's prophets and removed all the ways to worship Yahweh in Israel. 
And so Jehu is one of Ahab's servants, and God actually commissions out Elisha to bless Jehu as the new ruler of Israel. And then Jehu turns around very quickly and starts a coup and goes and kills first Ahab and then his wife Jezebel. And then he slaughters all of Ahab's children. And he continues in slaughtering all of his enemies for quite a, quite a lengthy span of time. And you can read about all this starting in 2 Kings 9 and 2 Kings 10. Jehu still, however, sins against God. Once he's instituted in his position, he still commits sin against God. And so in this case, it says, for the blood of Jezreel in the English, a better way to translate that specifically would be the bloodshed of Jezreel. You see, Jezreel is the city where Jehu lived when Jehu moved in and slaughtered first Ahab and then Jezebel and then all the offspring. So even though God has commissioned Jehu to do this work, God still is going to punish Jehu for having done that thing. It is possible for God to commission you out to do something and to also hold you accountable for having done that thing. God does so with King Nebuchadnezzar. God does so with the Assyrians. God does so with many people. For example, he does so with Rome to imprison Israel. But he still will hold his punishment to them, even though he commissions them out specifically to do those things. God commissions Pharaoh out to do specific things, and he can still hold him accountable to do those things. And so it is with Jehu and ultimately Jeroboam, the current leader of Israel. Break the bow is a term that you find at the end of that text. He says he will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Break the bow is a term for military destruction. If you were to say, I was to break the bow of someone, it would mean you got so close to them, a bow, which is a distance weapon, that you got close enough to break their bow, and so you've essentially uh, disarmed them. You've just defeated their military might. And so Israel, which had great pride in their military might, and Jehu and his lineage up to Jeroboam had great pride in their military prowess, uh, they are going to be broken by God. That is the condemnation that he has on them. Uh, there's a play on words here, which is pretty interesting in the Hebrew. Israel and Jezreel are actually uh, very similar sounding. So Israel in Hebrew is Yisrael, Yisrael, and Jezreel is Yisrael. So it's a play on words. Jezreel has one syllable less than Israel. And so he's doing some poetry, some play on words back and forth with Israel and Jezreel. Hosea employs in his child's name the condemnation that's going to come on Israel. And so as this child is growing up, remember Hosea is a young man when he starts his ministry. As this child is growing up, in the face of the king of Israel, Jeroboam at the time, this child grows up with that name. So he is a living witness for the condemnation that God is going to bring on, at that point in time, the royal house of Israel. And at this time, this punishment is realized fully. Remember, in just a short span of time, Jeroboam is going to die. His grandson is going to take over. His grandson reigns for less than six months before then six other kings follow him. And in a 30-year span of time, the whole household of Israel collapses. Jeroboam is the last mentioned king because he's the last significant king of Israel because there's much turmoil in the land until finally Assyria conquers and destroys and possesses Israel and takes them captive. And so then we move on to the second condemnation God has against his people. In the second condemnation we see, in starting in verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. 
In this case, we have absent the fact that Gomer bore this son through Hosea. You see, absent is in the first time, uh, the Lord says, go into Gomer, and she conceives and bears him a son. But in verse 6, we just have that Gomer has gone and conceived a son. Absent is the presence of Hosea, which means that likely this child is the first child as the fruits of Gomer's adultery against Hosea. So Hosea is likely not the father, and we can see that at this point her adultery has begun. And he names the child in the NIV, you will read Lo Ruma, which means no mercy or not merciful. This child is to bear the name of God's judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness. Ultimately, the punishment that Israel is going to get is God is going to remove his mercy from them. And at this point in time, I would like to say that there is a difference between mercy and justice. And often in English and in Western culture, we can conflate these two ideas. So if you'd bear with me for a moment, I'd like to paint a picture for you of the difference between mercy and justice. You see, I teach students chemistry, and I teach them sophomore through seniors, depending on how many times they have to go through the course, and they will always, every single year, have me as their chemistry teacher. And so what happens at the beginning of every semester is I give them a pacing guide or a syllabus, which gives a list of all the assignments, at least all of the major exams, and the specific dates that they will be on. And so a lot of times what happens is students will show up to the first exam ready and prepared to go, right? Right at the end of the first month, they're still sharp, they're ready to go to school, and they'll show up ready to take the exam, and they'll all take the exam at the same time, they'll sit down. And by and large, a lot of students will do very well on the exam. A few students will do rather poorly because they forgot to study or life got in the way. And so what happens is those same students will, with great fear and great uh, concern for their grade, show up to me, sometime during lunch period or during my prep, and they will ask me, hey, could I, could I do some test corrections on that or could I retake that test? And it's, it's the first test, so usually I'll go, yeah, sure. I'll give you a little bit of time to go turn in some corrections, and then you can turn around and you can turn that into me at some other point in time for some credit. They can make up their grade a little bit. Then the Unit 2 exam comes around, and so at this point in time, we're about midway through the semester, and the students are all over the place, but chemistry is a hard class, and most of them know that. And so they're still ready, a lot of them, for the Unit 2 exam, but a few more have let things slide. And a lot of those same students from the first time, and some more now join their ranks, and they'll join sometime during lunch or during my prep period, and they'll ask for a retake on that second exam, or some corrections, or some way to make up that grade. And again, usually I feel great uh, about giving them some additional time to make up the work or another shot at the test or maybe another copy of the exam that they can try to hold together their grade. And then a lot of times during the Unit 3 test, I'll get just over half of my students who haven't studied and are not prepared. And they will take and fail that test with great gusto. And then they will show up sometime later that week, very casually, and say, hey, I'll have your exam corrections in, ready to go at some other point in time. And then I say, no, you failed the test. It's going in the gradebook. It's going to stay like that. So then I go through, and usually there'll be a few of them who come in a group because they find strength in numbers. And they'll go, and they'll see that I'm not changing their grades. And then some, somehow, inevitably, one student will say, that's not a fair thing to do. And... Often, it's the kid who's been there three different times in my office doing the same thing. And so I'll say, you know what? You're right. It's not fair. Let me go change your unit two grade to what you got the first time. 
what you deserve to get. You see, there's a difference between justice and mercy. For me to be just would for me to give everyone the exact same thing as it was outlined in the syllabus, as we all agreed to do at the start of the test, at the start of the semester, and at the outset. And so a lot of students will beg for justice when it comes time for the third test, but they will rightly desire mercy during the unit one. And then during that course of time of me showing them mercy continually over and over again, they will begin to conflate the ideas of justice and mercy. And as soon as you think you deserve something, as soon as you begin to demand it, have it in your head that you are no longer thinking about mercy. You've confused the idea. You see, mercy is something that we don't deserve. And so just as those students don't deserve a retake, it is merciful for me when I give them a retake. What they rightly deserve is to sit with their grade because they forgot to study, and other people did study and did fine on the test, and they should justly have to sit with the grade that they got. But for me to be merciful would, for, would be for me to give them an extension or give them grace of some kind. You see, as it is with God, we do not deserve mercy. We deserve justice. And so in the contrast that God paints here through the prophet Hosea of his dealings with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, you see that one is going to be punished for the sins and one is going to receive mercy. You see, in this, God is not being unfair or, by, or uh, speaking out of two ends of his mouth when he deals differently with Israel than he does with Judah. God is giving Israel justice, exactly what they deserve, exactly what they were on track for. There's no injustice on God's part in his dealings with Israel. But with Judah, God is going to show them mercy. Not because they deserve it, not because they've done anything different than Israel, but because within his own will and his own wisdom, he is going to choose to show them mercy. And when he treats Judah one way, it is not right for Israel to turn around and say that's not fair because Israel got complete fairness in their dealings because they knew the rules when they started. God gives some justice and Israel gets Assyria ultimately. And God gives others mercy. And Judah gets King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah is going to be responsible for a lot of major reforms in the house of Judah. He rediscovers Deuteronomy, the book of the law. He reinstitutes the worship of God, Yahweh. He reinstitutes the priestly service. He tears down all of the high places of worship of Baal. And he destroys all their cult prostitutes and kicks them out. And Hezekiah is the way in which God is going to save Judah. And as he says here, not by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen, but through their holiness, he's going to save them through the ruler Hezekiah, not by military might, but by adherence to the law. And it's all for his wisdom and it's all for his glory. And in verse eight, we get the last child again, not weaned by, not had by Hosea. It says, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people for you are not my people and I am not your God. The last of the children is also a result of Gomer's adultery and he bears the name, not my people, or lo am I. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, we get the fact that God first calls the people of Israel his people. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And this is the one thing that is repeated roughly 20 times throughout the book of Exodus as a term of endearment. The only significant thing about the people of Israel is that they are God's covenant people. But in this moment, God is going to release them from that covenant bond 
because he has right grounds for divorce against this adulterous wife, against his people. He says, if you don't behave like my people, like you're mine, then fine, you're not. I release you from my good graces. You are not my people. And this last child carries the pinnacle of God's judgments to remove his relational nature from the people of Israel. God essentially divorces Israel on their ground of unfaithfulness. And this is in some ways related to Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John, that there will be people in the end who will be Jesus' sheep, his sheep, and there will be those by implication who are not his sheep. And the only difference between the two is nothing in and of themselves. They're both sheep, but it's based on whose they are. And if we are God's covenant people, that is a great, gracious gift. And what separated Israel from every other nation is the fact that they had Yahweh, who had revealed himself to them as their covenant God, and he had preserved them through many trials and many hardships. And now that favor is gone and the wrath is upon them. And now we get the picture of God's restoration because he doesn't leave it in verse 9. Even in this oracle, he's going to start and turn around and have some great news for us, which we've dwelt a little bit in time in the, the bad news. So in verse 10 it reads, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. The first word that strikes me in this passage is the word yet. Yet the number of the children of Israel. Yet is a transition term because they've just received their right judgment. But yet, Israel is going to somehow, some way, be reconciled to the Lord their God. And how is this possible? How is it possible for God not to remove his covenant love from them? Eventually, future term. How is that possible? The number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea. This harkens back to the Abrahamic covenant where he says your offspring shall be like the stars and like the sand of the sea. So God is going to be faithful to his promise to Abraham despite the fact that the people currently who are the heirs of the promise are not faithful to the Lord their God. So God is going to punish Israel, present tense, and future tense, they shall be like the sand of the sea. He's going to somehow re-up that covenant promise. And he's going to be faithful to his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to King David. He's going to be faithful. God's promise to the patriarchs will not be thwarted by the people's unfaithfulness. And in the places, uh, it says, in the place where it shall be said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. That doesn't refer to a specific location. In the place refers not to a location, but rather to a disposition or a condition that Israel was in the first time they were found by God and that they will be in again when God restores them to their good graces. They will be in a condition of brokenness, of unfaithfulness, of poverty, of destitution, and God will show up and he will restore them as his covenant people. And he calls them not my people again, but he calls them rather children of the living God. So they've now gotten an upgrade from the first time. It's different to be the people of that God, and it's a different thing entirely to be within the family of that same person, the children or the heirs of that God. This is quoted in Romans chapter 9, verse 25, to speak of the Gentile people. It's quoted in 1 Peter 2, 10, to speak also of the Gentile people. And it's, and it's quoted in John chapter 1, verse 10, when it talks about Jesus and it talks about the deliverance of Jesus for all the nations. 
this exact verse in Hosea. Hosea chapter 1.10. And I agree with the inspired authors that that is the correct way to interpret that text. That this refers to the children of the promise, not exclusively ethnic Israel, but that Hosea was always and forever talking about the future promise of God to his covenant people. Ultimately, the church, the children of the promise, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not ethnic Israel, but the children who are going to follow in Jesus' lineage. Their rescue is not based on works, it is not based on merit, but is based on God, who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then in chapter, or sorry, in verse 11, we get the final depiction of God's saving restoration to his people. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. You see, at this point in time, remember, Judah and Israel are divided. It's a kingdom that's split. And eventually, one day, God says, I will still, however, reconcile them together. And in fact, I'll reconcile and unite them together that they will have only one head over them. And that head, as we discover in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, is ultimately Jesus. You see, in the depiction in Romans chapter 5, and we can turn there together, Romans chapter 5, you get this depiction of the life under headship of Adam and the life under the headship of Christ Jesus. And this is exactly the imagery that Hosea will first speak of before Paul does. And we're not going to read this whole text together, but in Romans chapter 5, you get this depiction of the headship of Adam bears with it sin, it bears with it death, and accounts for all those who are under it. Because Adam is the first man and he's the, the type of what other men are to follow. And then we also get the new man, or Christ, as the head of the new Christian. And Christ represents a gift of grace that is lived righteously on his behalf. We get Christ, who's the picture of life, and Christ, who also counts for all who are under his headship and authority. You see, if you are under Adam, you are under the man who is deserving of justice by God. And if you are under Christ, you are under the man who is going to get mercy, on not based on your works, but based on the works of Christ, who is your federal head. And ultimately, this will pinnacle in verse 18, where it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, that is the ultimate picture of what the gospel is, that you are either condemned as unrighteous because of Adam's sin, and you bearing in with it that same sin nature, or you are declared righteous and justified by God, not on the basis of your nature, but on the basis of Jesus Christ's nature, who he can impute to you on the basis of his death on the cross. You see, Jesus dies in the exact location, in the exact space where you and I deserve to die, getting the just punishment for the idolatry and the adultery of the people. Because adultery is capital punishment. And if you recall, Jesus was punished by death, death on a cross. And he was punished by death, not shortly, not for a brief period of time, but in agony and in pain. And he cries out on that cross. And he says, and it says in Acts that for the joy set before him, he endures the cross that he's going to face. And then if you will turn back with me to Hosea, we're going to finish this out. There's a few uh, more pieces of Israel, uh, more pieces of this text that are pretty important. One is this very final clause that we see, and it says, And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
The fact that he says they shall go up paints a picture of going up, ascending from the underworld, ascending from death into life is the picture that's being painted to the glory of the united people after God restores them. And when it says great shall be the day of Jezreel, if you recall, Jezreel is the location of the bloodshed of Jehu. And so when he says great shall be the day of Jezreel, not only great was the bloodshed at Jezreel, not only great was the judgment of Jezreel, but ultimately great will be the glory that Jezreel experiences on behalf of God's restoration of the people. This picture shows us that God has always had this planned. And in fact, no sooner does he get through verse 9 than he, uh, and pronouncing judgment on his adulterous wife, then he d- turns around and declares his victory and his love and his faithfulness to the people. That he's going to, despite their unfaithfulness, be faithful to them. As we continue to study the book of Hosea, we will continue to under- unfold this picture of the marriage relationship and the covenant that was had and then broken. And we're going to do that in the weeks to come. But what God seeks to do through this prophet is simple. Yahweh is going to establish the fact that he is a better lover than Baal. Not only is Baal the adulterous lover, the lover of lust, but Yahweh is a better lover in every single way possible. It is not that the covenant is somehow restrictive for Gomer. It is that the covenant is the safe and the best place for Gomer to be. Although the Old Testament adultery was a capital punishment and that sin demands death, God gladly chooses to save his people Israel and God also gladly chooses to save us today from the punishment that we deserve. He saves us from himself, he saves us for himself, and he saves us by himself. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the the message that Hosea delivered thousands of years ago. Lord, I thank you that your word is as present uh, today as uh, tomorrow's newspaper. It is as contemporary for us as we could ever need it to be. And Lord, the truth that rings out through this prophet uh, is true for me, and it is true for uh, everyone under the sound of my voice that we have committed uh, with Gomer the adultery of idolatry. And I pray that you would uh, forgive us of those sins, Lord, uh, that you would uh, call our heart and bend our heart towards repentance and to turning from our sins and to loving you, Lord, and that we would get on our knees and we would beg for mercy, that we don't deserve, Lord God, but that you freely give. And Lord, that we would rest finally in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And I pray all of these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.